If you have your Bibles, I strongly encourage you to turn to them to 1 John chapter 2. You'll see it's not the, the verse in your bulletin because I, I can't preach what Pastor Drew preaches and said, I'm just going to continue on through 1 John, uh, this lovely, wonderful letter. Uh, we're going to be reading from verses 18 through 27, and that's a, that's a large chunk. That's a large pericope, but it's important to do this so that we can understand uh, the context, uh, understand the flow of John's thought. And we're going to be jumping around a bit, so that's why I encourage you strongly, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father." And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our holy God and Father, the secret things belong to you. Hidden within your all-wise counsel with the Son and the Spirit behind the veil of your inapproachable light. This morning, however, we approach with humility the things that you have revealed to us, that we may do all that you have commanded. Pour out your Spirit mightily upon us this morning. Open my mouth to declare boldly your word. Give us understanding that we may glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the last time we, we looked at this wonderful letter from the Apostle John, we read these strong but comforting words of 1 John 2.17. The world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we saw that the world, the, the present dark and godless system, is being made to pass away by the advancing light of Christ, which shines true already in Him and in you. John then punctuates 
the good news by adding that whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abiding forever means to have eternal life and intimate fellowship with God through our union to Christ. And that reality, that reality is what John wants all his readers to experience. As he said in his letters opening, his desire is that we would have fellowship with God and with each other. And that fellowship with one another comes through our union to Christ. And so we enjoy spiritual union with not only with Christ, but with each other. This is extra abundantly great news. So that is the context, the, the background preceding our passage this morning, which naturally leads us to ask the question, why does John start talking about the Antichrist? That, that seems like a pretty big change in topics. Also, uh, what is the anointing that we have received? Uh, what does John mean that we have no need for anyone to teach us? Does John mean perhaps that churches can go ahead and fire their awkward, bald, bearded pastoral interns? I certainly hope not. I may be a little biased, but I don't think John is trying to oust me from my job here at St. Stephen. Uh, further, I don't believe John is making a big change in topics when he brings up the Antichrist. In fact, uh, this passage flows very nicely from verse 17. He begins his address to us, his children, by saying it is the last hour. It's not so much a change of topic, but a developing of the topic. He had said the world is being made to pass away. And that is a reality that is occurring during this last hour. Now, the last hour, and that is not a quantitative statement about there only being 60 minutes left before the final judgment. Rather, it's a qualitative statement about the times. When the New Testament authors speak of the last hour or the last days, Acts 2.17, or, or the last times, 1 Peter 1.20, they are speaking of the kind of time we live in. We live in an age of the already and the not yet. Christ has ushered in the new covenant and its promises. Christ has inaugurated the final age of glory in Himself, yet we do not see it fully manifested yet. The final consummation of the kingdom of God on earth, our resurrection and glorification, they have not happened yet. But these are realities that have dawned already in Christ. And ever since His ascension, the light of His glory has been slowly pushing back against the darkness until that blessed day when Christ returns in final victory. So no matter what your view of the end times is, there's one thing we all agree on. Christ gets the victory. So this paints a rather optimistic view for the world. But if one takes a look at what's going on in the church every single day, it could become easy uh, to be cynical. Because indeed, the old world does not pass away silently with the encroaching dawn of Christ. Problems abounded during John's time. And so he set himself to embolden and encourage his readers against a particular problem they were facing, the appearance of many antichrists. Parenthetically, notice how John only mentions the capital A antichrist in passing. John doesn't address the exact particulars of the who, what, where, whens of the Antichrist because John isn't primarily teaching on the Antichrist. So, it might disappoint some, but 
I'm going to save the capital A Antichrist sermon for another time. Instead, I'm going to focus on what John did. My aim is to embolden and encourage you because it is true today. The appearance of many Antichrists present many and varied problems for believers. And in this sermon, I I will consider these problems under two motifs, uh, two headings. The first problem we can experience as we encounter the, the many antichrists, the first problem is that they can lead you to doubt that Christ is working in the world, and they can lead you to doubt the validity of your faith. So those are the two headings, motifs that we'll be considering together. But first, who are the antichrists? John describes them in our passage as those who depart, deny, and deceive. And he compares them to the coming Antichrist, which they had already heard about. Many Antichrists were departing from the fellowship of believers, verse 2.19. They were denying that Jesus is the Christ, the incarnate God-man, verse 2.20. And, and, check, and check out also 2 John 7. And they were trying to deceive, trying to lead people away from the faith, verse 2.26. And so this, this presents a problem, as I said, because it can cast doubt on what John said about the world being made to pass away. If it's true, if it's true that the light is making the worldly dark system pass away, then why does the church suffer so many setbacks? If the church is dwindling in numbers, if its teachings are being challenged, how can we really be sure that the world's darkness is passing away? As far as our eyes can see, it looks like the light is being defeated. It looks like the darkness is growing. And perhaps you've experienced those doubts yourself. It's grievous to see people being led away from the truth by false teaching, especially when those teachers used to be someone you trusted, uh, such as a pastor who has defected from the, pay, uh, the, from the faith. John wants to encourage and embolden you. Children, he says tenderly, it is the last hour. He doubles down. He says, we are living in the last days. We are living in the time of the already not yet. The world is passing. The true light is already shining. And how does he know this? John says, we know this is the case. We know it is the last hour because many antichrists have come. The appearance of these many antichrist figures actually confirms what the apostle Paul predicted in Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. Paul had been spreading the good news about the kingdom of God throughout the the region around Ephesus, and then he felt called to go. And before he departed, he, he gathered the church elders from the Ephesian church, and he told them, pay careful attention, because from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, this prediction, it's significant because it's directed to the elders of the, the church of Ephesus. It's directed to that general area, which is the same general area that John is writing his letter to. In other words, John is saying, you should have expected this. John is saying, just as you expect Antichrist to come during the last hour, you should expect the appearance of many Antichrists during the last hour. It was predicted. 
and now has come to pass. So this confirms not only the teachings of Paul, but also John's teaching that the light is indeed shining. And what is true in John's time is true for us today. Brothers and sisters, the existence of many antichrists and false teachers and their defection from our ranks, none of that negates the reality of the new covenant which is dawned in Christ. Christ's light is shining into the darkness. His love is defeating hate. And we need to remember that, especially in those moments when the opposite seems true, because it will not always seem like the church is advancing. It will not always seem like the light is shining. Between the times of Pentecost and the parousia, the Christ's second coming, uh, during this last hour, the times are urgent. The church will experience difficulties and trials. We will travail against those who slander our Savior and seek to deceive us. The rise of many antichrists may cause us, tempt us to doubt what John has said about the world being made to pass away. But brothers and sisters, it is the last hour. The times are urgent, but we do not fret. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The times are urgent, but we are not frantic. For we know that Christ reigns, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And so John encourages, emboldens us against the doubt that Christ is working in the world. Now, of course, that is only one of the many ways that the existence of many antichrists can cause problems for the church. John also addresses how the existence of many antichrists can cause us to doubt the validity of our faith. And you can break this problem into two parts, uh, two perspectives. Remember, in verse 17, John also said that whoever does the will of God abides forever. But here are all these antichrists who have departed. If people can leave the Christian faith and fellowship, in other words, if they can simply stop abiding, what assurance do we have that we will abide forever? And moreover, we must remember that John calls these antichrists deceivers. He calls them liars. They are cunning. They, they seek to lead astray. How can we be sure that they aren't right? How can we know that we have the truth? So these two perspectives uh, give us a, a, a glimpse of the big problem. Is our faith valid? Is the content or the object of our faith true? And so, to encourage and embolden against the doubt of our faith's validity, John provides a series of contrasting statements. Now, you might recall from however long ago I started this series, John has used this little clever technique before. He loves to set up contrasting statements. We've seen John make contrasts between walking in the light and walking in the darkness, 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 6. He, he compares love and hate and contrasts the two, 1 John 2, 7 through 17. And now we need to remember those contrasts, they were ethically oriented. Uh, they, they helped to tell who had fellowship with God based on their behavior, based on how they acted. But as I hinted back then, those tests, they aren't foolproof. 
It's easy to look good and act good, at least superficially. And so John once again uses this literary technique of contrasting statements and vivid imagery to give us one more test to to see who is in fellowship with God. And so John contrasts now for us. He contrasts between departing and abiding, between antichrist and anointing, and deception and truth. Uh, Look again with me at 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Here we see the contrast between departing and abiding. The many antichrists are, are those who have departed from the faith. And so this is the evidence, John says, that they were never really of us. For, he says, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, you're all very astute readers, and you're looking at this verse saying the word abide is not there. But wait, there's something under the hood. If we look under the hood of this verse to see what drives it, we see that the word continued is from the same Greek verb, meno, which is translated as abide elsewhere in this passage. We saw it in 1 John 2, 17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. We'll see the same Greek verb in 1 John 2, 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And it's here in this contrasting statement. You could translate it, for if, they had not, if, for if they had been of us, they would have abided with us. I, I get that's clunky English. And admittedly, the, the Greek verb meno, it means more than simply abiding. Uh, so the word continue is assuredly a, a very good translation for this context. But that peek under the hood to see what drives this passage, it shows that these Antichrist people, they did not stop abiding because they never began abiding with us. So that's the first contrast between departing and abiding. John moves on to build that next contrast off of what we just read. He says in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. The contrast here is between those who are anointed and those who are antichrist. It's a nifty mnemonic device, both anointed and antichrist start with the letter A, uh, but it's also a play on words in the Greek as well. The word anointed is chrisma, chrisma in the Greek. That sounds a little bit like Christ, Christos, doesn't it? Well, that's because, you see, Christ means anointed one. We use the title Christ so often that we can sometimes forget that it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah, Messiah meaning anointed one. And so, this play on words John uses, brothers and sisters, uh, to show us that we are the ones who have been anointed, chrisma, made like the anointed one. In contrast to the antichrist, antichristos, who are the ones who are anti the anointed one. We have received this anointing. It is a gift from the Holy One that we have been made like the anointed one. But who is the Holy One? Clearly, the Holy One is God, but which person of the Godhead is John referring to when he says Holy One? Some believe it is the Holy Spirit. This would be very fitting. Uh, We see in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, 
Peter says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. How fitting it would be and how fitting it is that we receive the anointing from the same Holy Spirit who anointed the anointed one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Other commentators think that the Holy One refers to Jesus, the Son. This makes grammatical sense in our passage. In 1 John 2, 27, John says that, as the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. This language of abiding in Him, that's, that's typically reserved for speaking of Christ. And if we look throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is referred to as the Holy One in places such as Luke 4.34 and Acts 3.14. So which is it? Well, I, I present unto you that I don't think we are forced to pick between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. I think it's best to see that our anointing is being done by Christ, the Son, through the operation of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that though they are separate persons of the Trinity, we must not tear asunder the unity of the Son and the Spirit within the Trinity. We see this especially in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And Paul in Romans 8 speaks of both Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. But think about it. Jesus has ascended bodily to the Father. Jesus is not bodily in us. How then does he dwell in us? Well, it's through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit abiding within us, Christ spiritually abides in us too. So as we look at our passage and discern who is the Holy One, as I said, I think it is best to see that our anointing is being done by Christ the Son through the operation of the Spirit. Now, that's a, that's a lot of information. So to, to summarize it, what we have seen then is that both our abiding and our anointing are great assurances that our faith is valid. We have received the anointing. We have been made spiritually alive. We have been united to Christ. Our eternal abiding with God and with each other, then, is not put at risk by people leaving the church. In a sense, John even speaks of this departure as a a good thing, a troubling thing, but a good thing. As Martin Luther uh, wrote on this passage, he says it's deplorable. It's lamentable, he says, that people would depart from the fellowship of believers. Nevertheless, it is comforting. The wheat, he says, is not at fault when tares shoot forth, nor is the truth the cause of so many evils. There's no problem with our abiding, our anointing. There's no problem with the truth. There's no problem with the message we proclaim The problem is a matter of the heart. To borrow the imagery of the parable of the soils, the the seed of the gospel did not find good soil in the hearts of those who departed in the many antichrists. Their secession was not caused by a defect of the good news. Rather, their secession revealed their true nature. They departed because they had never been united to Christ through the spirit-wrought living and enduring faith. John goes on to uh, build another contrast upon what we just read. But now he's addressing the concern of how can we be sure that we have the truth? 
picking up in verse 20 again. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So how are we able to discern truth? The answer John gives us is that we discern truth because and through the Christ-endowed, Spirit-applied anointing that we have received. This anointing is the means by which we have access to the truth. It is the means by which we can confess the Son, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 12.3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And it's by this confession that we not only have the Son, but the Father as well. That is the, the beautiful symmetry of this, uh, the Trinity at work in our salvation. Just as we cannot tear asunder the unity between the Holy Spirit and the Son in our anointing, we cannot tear asunder the unity between the Father and the Son. We have the Father as our Father because of Jesus Christ the Son. As Jesus said in John 20, verse 17, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And we know the Father because Jesus has made him known. John 1, 18. All of this is made a reality in this last hour. This last hour, this fulfillment of these new covenant promises. In Ezekiel 36, 27, we were promised the Holy Spirit would dwell within our hearts, uniting us to the Son. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it was prophesied that no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That prophecy is what John is alluding to as being fulfilled now when he says that we have no need that anyone should teach you in 1 John 2.24. John is not invalidating the need for Christian teachers. Hopefully my job's not on the line. Rather, John is describing what is meant by Jeremiah 31.34. Those who have the Spirit of Christ abiding in them have no need no need for anyone to teach them anything new or anything additional beyond what has been heard about God and our salvation from the apostles from the beginning. And the point is especially potent when we consider the historical background of what kind of heresies the false teachers, the Antichrists, were teaching in John's day. If the writings of the early church are to be trusted, John may have been thinking of a group led by a man named Serenthus. And this man is, is known in that time period as the arch-heretic. Well, let's see if he deserves that title. Serenthus was a Christian teacher who associated with a number of the apostles, including Paul and John. But eventually he broke off and took his followers with him to spread his teaching. What did he teach? He taught that Jesus was just a man who had received the, the Christ spirit, you see, Serenthus didn't believe that Christ came in the flesh, but instead he believed that the Christ spirit came upon the man, Jesus. Further, Serenthus claimed that he had received a, a special, a, a secret revelation from an angel. And so he took this secret knowledge and he peddled it. He went above and beyond what the scripture has re revealed. 
So John's point then is that we don't need those kind of teachers. We don't need secret additional knowledge because Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, has sent the Spirit to anoint us with all knowledge necessary. The Spirit leads us into all truth and is given to us to understand God's Word. And this is why we can have assurance that we have the truth, because it is God, it is God who is the truth Himself, who is the all-knowing one who has revealed to us the truth. He is the one who has made known to us the truth. He has been made known to us. So be encouraged and emboldened, knowing that your faith is not only valid, but powerful to save. As we draw to a conclusion, John gives us two similar exhortations to consider. In 1 John 2.24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And in verse 27, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So what is this word that we have heard from the beginning? What does it mean to abide in Christ? As we look at these exhortations, I, I can't help but think of Jesus' words in John 15. In John 15, Jesus says that he is the true vine and the Father is the vine dresser. Already, uh, John, uh, Jesus says in verse 3, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word that was spoken was the words of the Passover. When he said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel. The word which we have heard is not only the gospel, but it's a message of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Jesus Christ, the word himself, the anointed God-man, came to die in order to save us from our sins and to bring us into fellowship with him. And Jesus says in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When John exhorts his readers to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you and to abide in him, these are the words I think John has in mind. Because, beloved brothers and sisters, we have a great, precious Savior who invites us to abide in him. He is our strength and our salvation. He is our recourse for help, our refuge in trouble. And he invites you to pray for aid. He will not let you fall, though you must persevere. Jesus also promises in John 15 that every branch that abides in him and bears fruit will be pruned. This pruning, these trials that we experience are multitude and many. The antichrists, the many antichrists are but one of the trials we will face. But these trials, this pruning, is there to help us bear more fruit for the glory of God. So abide in Him. For those who may be listening, who do not believe the gospel, perhaps you have heard the gospel taught. Perhaps you grew up in the church and have departed from it. Perhaps you deny Jesus Christ, and perhaps you even seek to lead others to do the same. I implore you, to hear Christ's words of the gospel. He holds out forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God for, to all those who believe. 
And John says in verse 25, this is the promise that He had made to us, eternal life. Believe in these words and join in the blessed fellowship with Christ. It is the last hour. The time is urgent. John, uh, Jesus warns us in John 15 that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Judgment awaits. It is the last hour. The times are urgent. But our gracious God and Savior gives us hope. He is pushing back the darkness. He anoints us, abides with us as we abide in Him. And He does all these things and has has spoken all these things to you that your joy may be full. This is the Savior we worship. May this be a reality for us all, that the joy of having our Savior would be full as we abide in Him and have all knowledge of Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, fill our hearts with the joy that is promised to us. As we abide in Christ and He abides in us by the Spirit, fill our hearts with this joy. Keep us from falling. Help us to persevere through the pruning and the trials. Help us not to give in to false teaching, but to abide believing in the faith once delivered to the saints. We thank you for your graciousness towards us and that we wait for that blessed day when Christ will come in victory. He will come in judgment. He will come to make all things new. Until then, Lord, guide us home. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.